I want to introduce the artists to you who are part of our uh, summer program. Um, Deborah Randall, whose work you can see in this space, and Gallery One, and the gallery behind us. And Christina Pukayali, whose work is in the Artist Fisher Gallery. And Shannon uh, Novak and Jeff Nuss, who have done a collaborative project <coughs> standing in the foyer. You can see there is, uh, by the entrance, a screen with an animation in it and sound. And we will explain more about it later, but there's also sound outside when you come into the building from the Reeves Road entrance. So the conversation today will be an introduction to the practices of these wonderful artists. I'm very honored to have you all in the program. It was really a pleasure to, to work with all of you. And um, basically the idea for today is not a very formal symposium type of event. It's just a conversation with the individual artists about their aims and their focus for this work, why they, they made this work what is behind the thinking for this production. Uh, there are some commissioned works in this exhibition. Some of them were previously made. We'll explain that in each of the cases, but some of them were made for Tatui. And um, also to talk about the practice in general. So um, let's start by uh, asking Deborah Randall, as she's in the middle of her own room. Um, Deborah Randall um, was awarded the Wallace um, Residency Prize for the British School at Rome um, in 2016. No, I was awarded it in 2017, but right. I went there earlier this year. Right. So I was in Rome this year. So she was there, I will just introduce you and then you can talk okay. at length about what you did. She was awarded this, um, this prize, which allowed her to do research on uh, Antonio Gramsci, an intellectual, an Italian intellectual who was the founder of the Communist Party in Italy in 1915, who was imprisoned by Benito Mussolini when he raised power um, in the 20s. And uh, this research allowed Deborah to investigate his thinking to go to his foundation to look at his recent notebooks and inspired to make this work. So um, really the idea uh, of um, this exhibition called Are We Not Ready? This is a phrase that comes out of a quote on the wall by uh, Antonio Gramsci. It's about um, how this research took place, what is that you found there, and how Antonio Gramsci connects to your practice, which is mainly focused on the idea of the working space and, and workers' lives and their presence in, in your work. So how can we uh, summarize what uh, this, this was for you? Yeah, but I suppose when I think about my practice, I think about that I'm always interested in how power is at play in society, so, um, and I brought it in the last couple of years to a particular focus around working life, um, but I also have investigated at different times, you know, queer space and um, other ways in which power is active. So one of the reasons I was particularly interested in Gramsci is that 
um, while he was in prison, in for 11 years until he died. And um, he wrote what were known as the prison notebooks. And in these notebooks, he developed his ideas around hegemony and also particularly around common sense. And that's the thing that I was really interested in. So um, his ideas of common sense are not like those that we have in English, in the English language about sort of, you know, don't put your hand in a burning flame or, you know, it's common sense. His is more about communal sense or the ideas of shared sense. And his thinking around that was um, that this shared sense is something that serves the ruling elite, but the, the, that everybody else kind of readily adopts. It becomes part of popular consciousness. And it can, you can see it in play in contemporary politics where people seem to be acting against their interests by voting, and he can be a good example, voting for Trump, where there's no possibility that he could really serve your interests, but people embrace him either as a saviour or embrace ideas that um, are received ideas that lead you to value higher the keeping out of the immigrant than the building of safe and sustainable communities in your own, in your own um, community. So I was really interested in that. I thought it was really um, con had contemporary resonance and I wanted to make better sense of it. So in going to Rome, I um, explored that. And I went to quite a strongly academic institution. I had to keep resisting the idea that I was there to do some kind of biographical exercise. But I'm not really, I am interested in his life, but it's not about um, the icon, grandly, it's about the thinking. So I went there and explored ideas around that and tried to make them manifest in works that um, I like to think of, like hope that my artworks act as a kind of thinking space for me. They're sort of questions that I have that I haven't really got answers to, but I wanted to raise the questions in a discussive sort of um, even dialectical sort of com you know engagement. So I hope that there is that sort of into and out of the work for the viewer like there is for me because that's the book. But I think you, you, what, what your approach to his work and his personality was was actually resonant with what he was as an intellectual. He's quoted as an organic intellectual. Mm. He was an academic mm. because he even though he was very well read, and he was a journalist, by the way, he wasn't an academic. He was a journalist who funded a cognitive newspaper. And, but for him, the idea of knowledge had to um, <coughs> be understood by the masses. It wasn't something that would be separate from common sense and common knowledge, but integrated with it. So he was a great communicator and wanted everybody to be integrated in knowledge and knowledge exchange. So I think that that is very, yeah. very interesting, that you have the same attitude. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also this idea around common sense. I like he talks about common sense into good sense, and the good sense comes through the work of the organic intellectual, and the organic intellectuals are those who come up through life. They're not part of the structured sort of um, academic way of thinking. They're part of you know what comes from the lived experience, and from the lived experience can come a shift from the common sense to the good sense that that delivers on our on people's real interests and into social change that makes a better, better society. So those that's his thinking that I was sort of driven by. Well, it's really interesting to meet young people in Italy whose can, whose grandparents were communists, and um, I mean you know you know about the state of contemporary Italian politics with these, these shifts to the right that are quite frightening and arise in you know, new fascism and 
using the sort of um, styling of fascism as some kind of fashion um, macho kind of marching into the future in a very scary way. And um, the, but the people I met were people who were proud of their communist grandparents, who wished for something else, who had quite a, I guess, a, sometimes a romantic notion of Gramsci, but certainly some level of familiarity. So well, it's easy to romanticize someone who died in prison yeah. age 45. Yeah. You know, it was really horrible what happened to him, because actually Benito Mussolini was a communist, was a socialist, not a communist, when, when they were colleagues in, in, in funding all this um, socialist um, newspaper, and they were, you know, comrades, and suddenly he turned this idea of socialism like Hitler into this fascist regime that was completely oppressive and against the masses. But in a way, because of nationalism, it kind of brings echoes of that into the current politics. And this is why this work emerged in conversation with Deborah, because all the works you see in the exhibition were produced during the residency, except for this commission here, which is very significant because it links the past with the present. And Maybe you would like to explain why you made this work. Well, I made the work because when I, I saw an image and heard that um, Melania Trump had worn a jacket to the mm -hmm. Mexican border to visit the, um, the detention camps for children who had been separated from their parents at the border, and she was seen in a jacket, similar to the green jacket here, and on the back of it, um, it had text that said, I really don't care, do you? And um, it caused some controversy as it should, um, but also it made me immediately think of the fascist slogan, um, which was Menefrago, which means, uh, well, it really means I don't give a fuck, but it's the politest, I don't care. So, um, and it was a sort of, you know, an act of um, gizmo and sort of bravery of the, um, of the fascists, so I, I don't care, you know, and it's, and it's, it's threatening too, because they sang and they chanted it. And you know, this kind of, in both senses, sort of a theatrical form of not caring. And what does it mean not to care? You know, like how could you go to the border with that jacket? And then how could you get away with saying it's just a coat? As if fashion didn't sit in the conversation of power and politics, where it most definitely does. And so I was um, enlivened by it. And I'm not exactly sure what the connection is, but I think there is one. You know, and I and I thought I wanted to make a work where I swapped. The slogan was sort of modelled on a black shirt um, of the fascist party, and um, I didn't reproduce it exactly because I didn't want to get into that fetishising of fascism, which well, not me, but it can happen. Mm -hmm. You know, where um, people buy up old uniforms and you know glorify it. So I something I've styled it after it, but it's not it. Yeah. But also, it's quite um, telling that your film animation. In this exhibit, in this gallery behind us, Aguri, um, is is to do with this idea of um, foreseeing a future, um, looking to these birds flying over Rome, which is a very ancient um, belief of Romans that when they see birds flying, especially starlings, right? Yeah, especially starlings. Um, when they fly over, they bring news or bring you know omens to the inhabitants. So this idea that these black birds, black shirts, <coughs> black birds, 
are hovering over the map of Rome that you can see in this video. It's kind of scary and connects to how we are all at the moment quite scared by what's happening in international politics. I believe that everybody's you know, questioning themselves about where are we going with these ridiculous candidates that win elections because it's not like dictatorship. People are voting. Uh, coming from this kind of ideology of extreme nationalism and, and oppressive politics. So it's quite a, uh, it's a very compelling um, group of works and I, I thank you for that because you had faith in, <laughs> in having it here and um, I think it's very, um, it's very current and it will tell us a lot about the past and future and I would like to encourage people to read Gramsci because mm -hmm. Gramsci was a very interesting writer and he wrote his notebooks in prison in whatever paper he could source. Uh, he was punished by not getting enough material to write like many people are when they're in prison. And uh, I want to just, um, the last thing I want to address to you and then we will go on to Christina, is what's um, the piece called a dream, it's like a dream, uh, seems like a dream, sorry, which is that Olivetti Olivetti, typewriter in the in the gallery, which has cross-hatched text. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit oh, uh, the connection between Olivetti yeah. and, and Gramsci? Olivetti um, was one of the largest manufacturing companies during the 20th century in Italy, employing huge numbers of people. And the um, Olivetti family um, had particular ideas, and particularly the, the, the son, the founder, around the community movement and how the workplace could be a community. And he was very progressive in terms of things like um, maternity leave and um, theatres inside the, the um, workplace where um, workers were free to organise whatever workshops or talks or films or anything that, that they wanted. And um, so he had this whole philosophy of the workplace. And what I've done is overlaid um, e extracts from his philosophical writing, which I typed on the typewriter and um, overlaid it with an editing tape that Gramsci used in the prison notebooks, and which is an open form of cross-hatching, which allows the texts that he's decided he wants to revise to be seen while also crossing it out, making it very clear what his intentions were. And I kind of like that idea of how you can pull things from the past, like from these writings that were any time up to 1960 for Olivetti, into the present, but think about a, re, a contemporary reworking or rethinking of them, because I don't think that's it. I don't think the benevolent um, business owner is the answer. I think something far more empowering than that, and I think Gramsci would have thought so too. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you. So, Christina, welcome. And um, this is your first exhibition at Italy. Yes. And you're showing at the Iris Fisher Gallery, and the Iris Fisher uh, Scholarship was awarded to you when I came to Petuli uh, a year ago. So um, it is quite a nice um, use of the space because Alice Fisher was a visionary, a woman who wanted women to have opportunities to be creative and, and she um, inaugurated this space. So it is, it is very good to have you in that gallery, which is probably the biggest gallery you have exhibited in, is that true? Definitely. So was it a challenge to fill it with so many works? Um, yes and no. I think it was, uh, you know, it's, it's a space that I was able to mould and do whatever I would like to do with it. In that sense, that was easier than having to edit works down to 
four or five instead of 20, for example, I could you know, work across the space. Um, and I, yeah, I think it was not so much a challenge. I think it was just a really open opportunity to do whatever I wanted with the space, which is something I haven't had up to this point. So you went wild and painted a mural yeah. in one <laughs> corner and, and intervened the spaces in many different ways. So was, it, was that an expansion of what you normally do? Um, I think I've been able to bring together different parts of what I've been working on in my practice. Um, I've been working on uh, foam-linked blankets, I've been working on canvas, and I've been doing wall works. So it's meant I've been able to test those things out in the same space. Um, so what is your, your um, particular interest in the, in the link blankets? It started out a couple of years ago. Uh, I'd been thinking about working on the, the foam-linked blankets because it was, I guess, a, something very familiar in the house, uh, especially growing up Pacific Islander. I came to realise it was something that a lot of Kiwis had in their houses, but especially these sort of gaudy kitsch, uh, big cat blankets, and I started working on them. Also, the sort of we had uh, big American choppers with the big flags and eagles, <laughs> and, um, which were sent over from Utah from family members we had living over there. Um, and I was just always interested in, I guess, the symbolism of the big cat put on the blanket, something we had along in and around the house, but also uh, the the links to the big cat being, I guess, I guess, a symbol of strength and. Uh, <coughs> Sort of coming out of the kung fu movement as well, so that, that attaching to part of the Samoan Pacific experience as well. So popular so culture, popular <coughs> culture, kitsch, <coughs> something you know, quite hideous, really, but also <coughs> embodying strength and uh, mm. you know, it, it had these multiple layers of meaning culturally. It's interesting so because when I saw them, sorry to interrupt, I saw the. <coughs> Um, the other side of the Pacific, Californian um, yeah. velvet paintings, they call them there, which are, you know, Pacific, but from the Chicano movement, yeah. from the immigrants from Mexico particularly, and other places in Central America, moving to the States <coughs> and finding their identity, plus, you know, um, clearly um, marked with these materials that are very uh, hassle materials, are very cheap materials. And painters will make their, you know, rarities appear in these difficult materials because when you paint on it, what happens? It absorbs. It absorbs. It all of it exactly. You can't treat it the same way you would treat a canvas. Um, but yeah, the reference to the velvet painting as well was something I quite liked because it sort of harks back to the same era of um, my family's migration to New Zealand as well. So it was sort of tying in a couple of areas around timelines as well. But I also like the way you talked about the, the, the nature of the material, that if you touch it, if you pass your hand over it, you kind of create volume and light yeah. and shadow, but just touching it, yeah. which is interesting. That's why you shouldn't touch. <laughs> because you change the painting. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting coincidence, or actually not coincidence, that. I'm always fascinated as a Latin American to see the parallels between the different parts of the Pacific, because we also have the Pacific there, mm. you know, alongside Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Chile. Um, Rapa Nui is, you know, is a Maori island and it belongs to Chile because it's colonized, but 
is actually Polynesia. So it's quite interesting to see how these movements seem disconnected but somehow come together in, in, in images, yeah. in music. So we'll go into the music now. The title of the exhibition, Solid Gold, comes from your experience of listening to that radio station? Yeah, Solid Gold FM. <laughs> um, which is the backdrop for my formative years and my earliest relationship to painting, uh, painting houses with my father, going to work with him. And um, yeah, I, I guess with the, my research this year specifically has is, is, is been gravitating towards, I guess, my concern and weariness and yeah, just, just gen general conflict with the rise of Western nationalism, yeah. broadly Western nationalism. Uh, across Europe and America, and seeping into New Zealand, um, especially with uh, visitors from Lauren Southern and Stefan mm -hmm. Molyneux coming in and spreading those same sorts of sentiments of anti-diversity and uh, tightening up borders with with uh, a sort of global shift towards uh, a global a global shift towards redefining borders and spaces and who we are and what we are and uh, with mass migration that that happened very similarly when my dad immigrated to New Zealand in the 70s there was that sort of tightening of nationalist ideologies and I think what's what sort of come from looking into that is this regression to the golden era or the economic golden era western golden era of economic stability uh, across Europe across America across New Zealand post-war and social stability and more right-leaning or conservative sentiments sort of hark back to this era of making it great again, making it stable again. Whereas I'm also seeing on the other side of the spectrum that there is uh, like a harking back to the democratizing movements of the 60s also. And uh, yeah, I think it's just really interesting that it's always sort of going, it was all, all the sort of the weight of the, the movements in the 60s and the weight of uh, social and economic stability being brought up so much. I, I, it made me really think about that period in time and how disconnected I am from it, but a very personal relationship through music mm. to that particular time. And, and also, you know, my, my, my lineage, my heritage coming over to New Zealand that exact period of time as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So bringing those ideas in that particular time frame into this show as well. The subjective and objective observations of what's happened through history, but also how I inherited an idea of it, but I was never really there and I was never really a part of it. But there are also connections across, as I was saying before, in terms of visual language, but also political connections like specific, <coughs> uh, the, the Polynesian Panthers here connected to the Black Panther Party in California in yeah. the 70s, you know, these are not coincidences, They're, these are ideological connections. People are looking at what's yeah. happening in other places. The music is the vehicle of that, the deep yeah, soul and, and, and R&B and, you know, funk music come from, from that root of oppression. So it has to do with the civil rights movement, as well as with romance and, and you know, other things. And the country music as well, romanticizing more conservative yeah. notions of land and place, belonging, yeah. who belongs here. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's both sides. I grew up with all of that music, and that's quite conflicting for me also. It's 
it makes me analyse my own relationship to nationalist ideologies as a New Zealander, but also as a child of an immigrant who is sort of always pulling away a little bit from nationalist identity, like the nationalist identity politics, I suppose. And it's interesting that somebody of your age is interested in that period, because it's history for you. <laughs> it is history, yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm born at the end of yeah. the 20th century, really, so yeah. you know, I, I can't have that connection in the same way as my parents who were born into it, which is what I find quite interesting with my generation sort of taking ideals and movements and ideologies from a particular time. It, it starts to fracture and fragment a sense of time and space in a way I find quite interesting. It's you're only ever reaching for it, but you were never really there. And that is very, um, I can say I identify that in the, in the room with your work, the fragmentation, but it's the idea also, since the first time I saw your work, it seemed like it came out of public space somehow, without being street painting. Mm. Um, it has this connection with public space where your eye goes to advertising, to, gets, you know, your eye gets directed to so many visual stimuli and you know in your painting there is a bit of that the body moves with the paintings it's not mm. a static connection where the viewer is in front of a canvas you are kind of going through the space mm. with the movement of it so I love the way that this room works and I hope you enjoy it too mm. um, I'm moving on to Shannon and Jeff so thank you Christina would you like something else Shannon, we talked about your work when I came here and you were talking about synesthesia. I'm really interested in works that are connected, that connect the senses, so they work on multiple levels. And um, you were fascinated by that, but for a particular reason or just because you've been doing research on it? On synesthesia? Mm-hmm. Um, no, because I have it. <laughs> you are synesthetic. Yes. <laughs> Can yeah. you explain that? Yeah, so it's just a crossing of senses, um, which is it can happen in many ways for different people. Um, means, say, um, visual is mixed with taste, or sound is mixed with visual, or just the five senses that we have get crossed over in some way. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, it's kind of music, so sound and, and visual, they kind of cross over. Um, quite strongly. Mm. Yeah, so I kind of experience uh, visual uh, via sound and vice versa. That's great. Mm. <laughs> Is it confusing? Uh, not really. No, it's just it's kind of just normal or just just the way things are. Mm. I think when I was younger, um, I wasn't sure what to call it. Cause it's a big word, and I didn't know. Um, I knew something was going on, but I didn't know what to call it mm-hmm. until later. And then I was like, oh, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I was like, that, yeah. That's great. It's a great capacity to go from one to the other. Yeah. And um, for this work, The Flight of the Magnolia, yeah. you collaborated with Jeff, who yeah. was the software genius yes. <laughs> composing <laughs> these two elements together because you actually brought image and sound into the same work. Mm-hmm. But the most interesting part of it, this is what captivated me about doing these projects, that you know, we were going to use the movement of our bodies in the space to generate this imagery and the sound. So it's not pre-made, it's actually you making it, us making it. Mm. Again, 
sense of a movement, right? The common sense, the people in the space, your painting, inviting. I think it's all kind of coming together in this program really nicely with from different perspectives. Because what you're doing is you're with the sensors, well, it's actually not sensors, but you're using the cameras that yes. are in the space. Mm -hmm. Security cameras are yeah. capturing the movement of all of us. Can you explain the technicalities behind it or the poetics yeah. behind yeah, it? I can tell. Um, so I do quite a bit of collaboration with different artists. And mm. One of the things I really enjoy about that process is coming to understand an artist's um, kind of process and what their interests and um, one of the things um, Shannon talked about was kind of coming into architectural spaces and responding to how the space felt to him with kind of color and light and um, sound. And, um, and I really like that idea of um, rather than like going into a space and hanging your idea on the wall and responding to what's already there. So, so when we approached kind of making kind of the software to run this visual, I kind of approached it in that um, kind of making an intervention, I guess. So I used a computer from the gallery. Um, we used the existing um, security cameras that are already set up in the gallery. And I just basically pointed a web camera at the security camera feed, and I'm using that as the input, which then some software um, kind of calculates what's, what's moving, translates that into sound, kind of generates the score based on um, kind of Shannon's discussion and kind of following his aesthetic um, direction, and um, yeah, so it's all kind of built from here. The motion is of the building. It's all um, kind of a response to what's happening um, at the moment, and so it continually changes. And it's and because it's from the camera, it's um, it's kind of nice and kind of unexpected. So like if you. So it's a, it's a website as well, so you can come view it from home anytime you want to kind yeah. of get a sense for what's happening in the gallery. Mm -hmm. And there's one one particular camera that just kind of catches the edge of a road. So in the middle of the night, you'll just every once in a while you'll hear a hear a note as a car kind of drives by. Mm -hmm. And so like those little unexpected moments that we didn't plan. It's the kind of uh, it's just capturing the life of the, yeah. of the space. You wrote something very beautiful about the the living being um, an organism. Right, and you were comparing the reading of the cameras of movement around with these devices that doctors use to to mm -hmm. scan your body, and so you want to expand on this idea that the building becomes an organism, and mm -hmm. in which way you envisage. Because we will see, we'll, we'll be surprised today, because we'll have hopefully a lot of people in the foyer, <laughs> and the animation will be crazily busy, and the sound outside will be very busy too. So. Mm -hmm. This idea of impredictability and uh, also the, the the organic nature of it sometimes is very quiet because mm -hmm. there's like three people in the foyer. Mm -hmm. So how do you relate that to the organism, to the living organism idea? Um, I just I think I've always seen the gallery or spaces as kind of living spaces and not static. Um, mm. So there's energy flowing and um, it's kind of capturing that energy to a degree um, as generated by people. Um, the, the title of the work comes from a painting um, by Paul Nash in 44, who literally painted a uh, magnolia flower that released from a tree um, floating through the wind. 
Um, the idea behind that was to bring uh, an inanimate or seemingly inanimate object to life um, as having its own spirit kind of energy uh, flow. And this is what I'm trying to do in a way here is say that the gallery is an object or supposedly an inanimate object that we can bring to life um, through the work that we've developed. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's Magnolia season as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can smell the scent of the magnolias yeah. while listening yeah. to your music. You know, I'm sure you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll start by asking you the last question, which then we pass on to the rest, about how this relates to your wider practice. You have a work in Britomart at the moment, the bridges yeah. that connect the buildings. Yeah. Is, does this connect or is the development uh, of that in some way? I think ultimately all the work I produce connects to each other. It's all part of a story that unfolds um, just with emphasis on different um, themes. I mean, here um, it's quite focused on the gallery and the space, spaces within. Uh, whereas, say, the work at Brito Mark, I mean, there's an element of that, but it's more um, that particular work was about um, celebrating um, diversity in the workplace. So it's a, a little different. Um, my practice at the moment um, is quite focused on uh, contemporary gay issues, um, particularly in New Zealand um, and abroad. Um, and this kind of doesn't really sit in that, that field, but um, I have another kind of focus which is more in the, the architectural kind of sound music type, mm. type work. So I think there's probably a little bit of crossover um, when I think about it. Um, I mean, the flight of the magnolia as a concept um, speaks to the idea of um, coming out, uh, being free uh, within yourself and your identity mm -hmm. uh, out in, in public. Mm -hmm. um, Empowering. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting that, you know, this organisation started as a community space mm -hmm. with activities for the community funded by these visionary women in Patrana that developed into later having a gallery that was separated in a different building and then all integrated in what you see today. And actually the movement, the, the main movement during many work days when visitors don't come to Pakrana to see expressions are by the community using the rooms at the other side of the building, you know, for Tai Chi classes, painting classes, the symphonic orchestra, Manuka Symphonic Orchestra rehearses in our auditorium. We have so many activities that are not necessarily art goers' mm. bodies are, you know, they, they implicate other members yeah. of society. So in a way, your call for diversity and integration and the freedom of being in space is encompassed with, with this too. So I'm very grateful to you for thinking that. Um, how about you? How does this fit within your wider practice, Christina? We're going in the other direction now. Um, I th my wider practice is always dealing with points of cultural conflict and the opening up the intersections where cultures do butt up against each other. And that's 
that's where my practice has led to this point in terms of really analysing a global sense of cultures butting up against each other, ideologies butting up against each other, and then turning that back to myself, to my experience, to um, the conflicts I have with a closeness and an extreme detachment to a national identity, national identity politics, um, through uh, you know solid gold FM painting with my father and watching his performative sort of assimilation into uh, New Zealand society, New Zealand culture, um, or trading culture at least. And you know, it's, I'm still, uh, you know, it's it's tying into, I guess, really looking into the really uncomfortable things to look at within my own questions around identity, <coughs> especially in relation to where there really are uncomfortable conversations to be had, mm. where cultures are, mm -hmm. you know, where ideology meets ideology, and who is right and who is wrong, mm. and whether that's the right way to be framed. So, mm. that's sort of for me. Great. Thank you. I see it as an expansion, not a yes. change, because that was the, change. the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Right. yeah, it's just it's moving where it needs to be moving at the moment. Great. Well, I think for me, I mean, this exhibition was a very focused area of research and making in a particular period of time, apart from the new work. But as I sort of mentioned earlier, um, it continues my interest in how power is active in, in our personal, our social, and our organised spaces. And I'm most, most particularly interested in how language is active and how I look at us as being sort of in and of language. We, we, um, we express ourselves through language, but we're all also produced by language that comes to us. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always interested in ambiguities of language or something that seemingly innocent might say something else or, um, and that it's open to interpretation. I'm also particularly interested in the personal pronoun, you know, the I and the we, so it's often present in the work, like with a small work around the corner, in that space it's, um, just says tired of being tired, and there has to be someone who's tired of being tired, and in that expression of tiredness, my expression of it, when you, like, maybe when you view the work, it, you often will sound, um, uh, language works either allow or sort of silently to itself, so that the, the language goes into the body and into the self, and that sort of asks a question of you to make sense of that work for you. Or maybe it does, that's what I like to think it's doing. And, um, and, so, and also that personal pronouns, for there to be an I, there must be a you. You know, there's no point in me being the I, it shifts with use and it, and it is in the dialogue, so I'm interested in that too. I think we can open to the floor now if you have questions for the artist. It's a good time to do it before our opening. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> just waiting. Oh, just I'm always 
just in reference to something when I when I choose my colours, or at least the, the main colours that I use, it began with using a lot of state house colouring, so a lot of pastels. Um, in the beginning of my painting practice, uh, it evolved to using a lot of fluorescent uh, colours that referenced roadworks and uh, signage and this particular palette that, you know, I went with this palette, or I've evolved to using this palette, um, really thinking about the time period during the 50s, 60s and 70s and picking out particular colours because I'm quite interested in how this era is also seeping into popular fashion, popular culture, popular um, interior design. I, I quite like the, it's not quite a, I think there's, there's something that's, it's not a jipe at, I guess, it being popularised or this era being popularised, but there's, there's, there's something I like in playing with the idea that it's, it's, it's popular. I use a lot of pop cultural symbolism in my work, whether I'm referencing cartoons or movies or television, popular music. I think I wanted to incorporate a popular palette referencing this time as well. Any more questions? I think it's becoming more popular now and more accepted scientifically as they start um, being more rigorous in the kind of um, report and research around it. I mean, the Oxford, um, there's an Oxford Concise Tetrunia of Synesthesia that you can get that kind of charts it's, it's scientifically um, and um, studies coming out that look at trends like Seventy percent of people um, with synesthesia um, say that zero and white, well, zero means white and white means zero. These sorts of things. Um, but I mean, there's, I think there's in, in, in a lesser sense, there's it's probably in us all to a degree, um, or some kind of degree, because there's a study um, done, for example, where it's put up two images. One's um, kind of like a a fluffy rounded cloud and one's um, this kind of sharp zigzag kind of um, thing <laughs> and one's, one's called um, vulva and one's called kiki and you're asked to make the association and pretty much 99% of people will say kiki is the sharp one and vulva is the round one um, so in that synesthesia at play you're assigning you're crossing the senses so it's not that far, I don't think. Do you think, think everybody has it and then we just lose it because we're... I don't, I don't think it's lost. I think it might be just sitting there and <laughs> it might... I think, yeah, into di two different degrees of... Because yeah. Yeah, I have the um, words and letters and colours, which is the most common word. Yeah. Yeah, so what, what would be an example for you? Yeah. My surname is sort of green and yellow and orange. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. I used to have dreams as a child about numbers. Yeah. And the even numbers were really sharp and hard. Mm-hmm. And the odd numbers were soft. <laughs> but there's yeah. this thing that like people are like, but they don't believe that. How could that be? It's, mm-hmm. it's, but then it makes me think about your gay politics mm-hmm. and this whole idea of how do you decide who's gay? Conversion therapy, which I know you've also yeah. worked through. Yeah. And who's to say what's true? Mm-hmm. The more that we Learn. Exactly. Yeah. The more science there is around it, maybe. Yeah. The less science. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I'm doing a painting show um, in January, um, and it's touching on the 17 years that um, I spent in New Plymouth in the closet, and it starts off with um, the supposed gay gene, and mm-hmm. the ideas around that, mm-hmm. and kind of linking into exactly what you're talking about. more questions? <coughs> um, Deborah, I have a question. Um, what you just said before about how we produce language and we are produced by language, is that an idea that comes from a, t- a particular place or is that? I mean, is it someone else's writing or something? Yeah, like, or is it? Yeah, it is, I don't recall. Or is it like <laughs> a synthesis of your Yeah, personality? I think it is, I think. Um, but it is, I mean, there's, I guess there is quite a bit of writing about how language is active, you know, and if it's never neutral, it, the words that we use to describe things aren't the thing anyway, they're just words we use to describe them and they're always informed by time and by a particular um, system of values. Yeah, so that, that's what I kind of mean in the terms of we produce by language. An agenda being a really simple one, that, that idea that you might first understand yourself as a girl you know, and that you understand yourself as a girl probably before, before understanding yourself as a human being. You know, it's kind of so active in our language, um, the, the genderization of, of people, physical sort of person, and our language sort of makes us mm. as well as we, we express and make ourselves through language. Yeah, it's just such a beautiful way to say it, like that. You said that we produce language and we produce by language. Thank you.